Hello friends and welcome to the Hillside Church Podcast. My name is Brad and I serve Hillside Church as the lead pastor. We're so glad to be able to share God's word with you in this way. God has so much in store for you and for your life and one of the ways that God works in our lives is through the study of his word, like the message you're about to hear. Our prayer for you is that as you share in this message, whether it's me preaching or if it's someone else, is that God's word would minister to your heart and life in a most powerful way. Thanks again for being part of our church family. God bless you. Well, this week we're beginning a new sermon series looking at the person of Jesus. If you're newer to Hillside Church, um, one of the things that we like to do in our calendar is to devote the first few weeks of every year looking to try and gain a bigger picture, a better understanding of just who the God we serve is. And this year we're going to be doing that by looking at the person, person of Jesus. And this year we're going to look at Jesus in 3D. And what that means is, is we're going to take the next few weeks and we're going to look at six different stories or moments from the life of Jesus. And we're going to do that by trying to bring maybe some more context, some more details, some color to these stories to help them maybe come alive in a new way for us, to help us maybe see these stories and to see Jesus and what's taking place in these stories. And, and then by extension, ourselves and our lives in, in a bit of a newer light as we look at these stories of Jesus. And so this week, we're going to be looking at a story from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Not the beginning of Jesus' life, but the beginning of Jesus' ministry. At about 30 years old, there's this pivot point in Jesus' life where he goes from kind of anonymous, kind of just a regular guy in the crowd, and he steps into this new role, this new kind of life where, where he begins to preach and he begins to travel and he begins to do all of these things. And so we're going to start today at that kind of point in his life. If you'd like to join me in scripture, you can go to Luke chapter 4. That's where we're going to be looking at this morning. But before we get to Luke 4, I just want to set the scene for you because I think it's so important for us to be able to, to see and understand exactly what's going on in the moment that we're going to come to that's going to unfold before us today. But our story actually begins before Luke 4 in, in Luke chapter 3. And Jesus comes to the Jordan River. And John the Baptist, who's a character that shows up early in the story of the Gospels and a little bit throughout, he's actually Jesus' cousin. Um, he, he, he's, he's the cousin of Jesus, Mary and, and, and Elizabeth, they, they were related. And so John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. And John the Baptist is actually in the River Jordan and he's baptizing people. He, he, he is, he's baptizing people to, to show the, their commitment to God. And, and he's baptizing people from all around the area. And then while he's baptizing people, his cousin Jesus shows up to be baptized. And, and Jesus comes down to the water. Jesus comes down to be baptized by John. But, but John knows that Jesus is someone special. See, we actually read about in Luke chapter 1 that, that the moment that these two boys are for the first time in the same room together, um, even though they're both still in utero, we, we read that, that the moment that, that even Mary and Elizabeth are in the same room, and by extension, their, their babies that they're pregnant with are in the same room, but the moment they come into the same room, John jumps out of excitement knowing that, that, that this baby that's in Mary, 
there's something special going on there. There's something significant. And so as Jesus makes his way into the Jordan River, John stops him and says, no, 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 Jesus, I can't baptize you. You need to baptize me. Far be it for me to baptize you. Let me be baptized by you. But Jesus says to him, no, no, John, I need to, we need to do this. I need to do it like this. We need to, you need to baptize me. So, so John agrees and he baptizes Jesus. He, he takes him down into the water and, and brings him back up. And then there's this incredible moment in scripture where, where we can't even fully fathom or understand all, all that takes place here. But, but the Bible tells us that the heavens opened up. And then it says that the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus like a dove. And then God the Father audibly speaks. This is the first time in Scripture where we see the, the Trinitarian nature, the, the Trinity of God all together in one place like this on full display. But, but the heavens open up, the Holy Spirit comes and descends on Jesus, and God the Father speaks and he declares to everyone gathered there, this is Jesus' identity. He says, this is my son whom I love and am well pleased. Jesus is declared by God to be the son of God. What a great moment. What a great start to your ministry. I, I mean, from here forward, what more could you ask for as a place to start from. You want to talk about setting somebody up for success. Starting from a position of strength. Starting from a place where. It, how can it go bad from here? God pulls back the heavens. He speaks for everyone to, to hear. Declaring who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit comes on him. But this moment. Doesn't lead to. Where you might think it would. For Jesus. And it's actually what happens next that I want to spend our time focused on now. Luke chapter 4 picks up right after this moment. As we're at the Jordan River, it says, the whole, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit that just descended upon Jesus. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by that Spirit to the wilderness. From that moment, George, Jesus comes out of the water. There's this incredible, holy moment that takes place. And the Holy Spirit that's come upon him, come upon Jesus, leads him to the Judean wilderness. Now, this, this wilderness is, is just a little something that we may need to unpack here a little bit. Because we live in a very specific part of the world. And living where we live can really inform what we think of and what we understand when we use a word like wilderness. See, when I say wilderness and us living here in the foothills of the, the Rocky Mountains, we can think of lush green pastures. We can think of forests with trees and bushes and rivers. That the wilderness here looks like something very specific, but the wilderness of Judea is not at all like the wilderness of southern Alberta. There isn't a whole lot of vegetation. There really isn't a whole lot of anything other than, than maybe rocks. 
It's a desert. It's a dry area. It's very rocky, high, what they would call mountains. We wouldn't necessarily look at them and see them as mountains, but, but they would see them as mountains, mountain peaks full of dust and dirt. It's a barren wasteland. It's, it's nothing. It's nowhere. It's, it's not nice. And so why of all places does the Holy Spirit that's just descended on Jesus, why of all places is Jesus led here? What could be the purpose for Jesus coming here now? Well, that's found in the next verse. Chapter 4, verse 2 says, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Oof. Terrible place, terrible circumstances. Not exactly the start to ministry we thought we were off to when Jesus was baptized. Now, just as a side note, doesn't life seem like this sometimes? A really great high moment, things are going your way. Things are just the way that they should be. Things are just the way that we want them to be. It's great. It's awesome. It's wonderful. But then suddenly things take a turn. And they go from good to bad really quick. But not only do they go from good to bad, it seems like life just really leans into the bad. That it's not just bad, but it's like, no, 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 no. We're going to get all the bad in here. Jesus has this high moment. And from there, the Holy Spirit leads him to this terrible place. But maybe it's to show Jesus something. Maybe it's to show us something. Maybe it's, it's so that God can show us how he's going to redeem this terrible place. Maybe God's going to, to show Jesus that, that even though it may be bad, God can still use it for good. That, that he leads him out into this awful wilderness, but, but it's so that God can lead him actually to an oasis in the wilderness where we can come to this understanding that even in the most difficult, awful places of our lives, there's an oasis to be found in God. Right? Right? No, that's not at all what God does here. God has called Jesus into the wilderness to show him that, that even in the worst places, it can still get worse. You, you're brought out here into the wilderness with nothing, with no one. It's inhospitable. And you know who's there to meet you? The devil. And he's going to tempt you for 40 days. He's called him into the worst place. And the only thing worse than the place, that the reason he's there, or the only thing worse than the place he is, is the reason he's in that place. To be tempted by the devil. To be tempted for 40 days. 40 days. Can you imagine? Over a month of the enemy's schemes for him to try and trick Jesus into falling into sin. 40 days. Can you imagine how, how hard that must have been? How agonizing that must have been for Jesus. And, and so here's Jesus out in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And somehow it's even worse than that. 
The rest of verse 2 tells us he ate nothing during those days. And then the most obvious verse in the history of Scripture. And at the end of them, he was hungry. Probably a bit of an understatement there. But I mean, for over a month, out in the desert, Jesus is eating nothing. 40 days with no food to sustain him. Jesus is in the wilderness, in in the desert. He hasn't eaten anything. He's hungry. And now things keep going from bad to worse to worse as it's time for the devil to tempt him for 40 days. Now, we don't really know what that means. We don't know exactly what that looks like. We're only shown three temptations that Jesus faces. And so we don't know if that's all of them. That this is a full record of the temptations that Jesus had. And and that there was one, and then a few days later, the devil comes back. And then a few days later, the devil comes back. We don't know if if there's more that we're just not given an insight into. We don't know if Jesus was out there for 40 days not eating in preparation for these three things. And they all kind of came at the end. We don't know exactly what this 40-day span looked like. All we know is that we're given three. The first one in verse 3. The devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Right out of the gate, he hits him where it hurts. He targets Jesus' biggest weakness. We, we just read in the previous verses, in case there was any ambiguity that we might think, well, maybe the, the, you know, God was on him and he, he restored his, his hunger, so he wasn't actually hungry. No, verse 2 tells us Jesus was hungry and the devil shows up and says, I'm going to use that. And he takes a swing at Jesus right where he's weakest. As he's out in the wilderness, he isn't eating. It's potentially been over a month since he's had anything to eat. And so that's where the enemy goes right away. Take one of these stones and turn it into bread. Use your power and your authority. Please yourself, take one of these stones and turn it into bread. Come on, Jesus, treat yourself. You can do this. He he comes to Jesus with this idea of comfort and pleasure. You don't need to fight. You don't need to deal with this. There is another way. And isn't it true that the enemy comes after you and I in this same way? That he will go after our our idea of pleasure and the things that we want rather than keeping our eyes focused on what God has for us. How many times have we fallen short? How many times have I fallen short? Because sometimes it's just easier to compromise. It's just easier to look at my situation and the place that I found myself in and all the things that I'm dealing with and and, and I can look and I can go, look, I know God said this, but it's just easier if I do this. It's just better for me if I take what I know God said and and move it to the side and just focus on, on what I need to get through what I'm dealing with right now. Even if that means that I gotta push God aside. I haven't eaten in 40 days. Forgive me if I use a little bit of the power that you've given me to eat some bread. 
You led me here. The Holy Spirit brought me here. I haven't eaten. What's the big deal? I want things to be easier. And so I just bend or twist what God has said to to suit what I want so that I can get what I want, I can get what I need. But look at how Jesus responds. Jesus answers and says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus comes back to the truth, to the truth of God's word, and he says to the enemy, look, this bread, it may sustain me for a moment, but, but I'm not here for a moment. This, this bread may take away an immediate need that I have right now, but I'm not concerned with the immediate. And the only thing that will really sustain me for why I'm actually here, not just here in this moment, but why I'm actually here, it's not a loaf of bread. It's by my Father. It's by God himself. Jesus is physically starving, and yet he rejects a moment of comfort, of pleasure to remain inside of, or to remain in God's will. And I see that, and I think, how many times have I done the opposite of that in my life? How many times have, have I said to God, look, God, I, I know what you want from me, but if you're not going to do X, Y, and Z, I'm out. God, I know what it is to follow you. I know what it is to stand for you. I know what it is to live life the way that you've called me to. But if you're, if you're not going to take care of that for me, we've got a problem here. Because I don't want to deal with that if that's what it takes to follow you. God, that's too hard. It's too much. It's too far for me to be comfortable in going. If I have to walk away from you because I don't want to deal with that, then okay. But here we see Jesus being confronted with the most comfortable, the most pleasurable, the most immediate answer to the problem he's facing right now that that can take away so much of, I'm sure, what he's dealing with. And he rejects it. He, he walks away from it and says, no, I, I won't do that. Second temptation in verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. So here, here the devil comes with another trick that he likes. And he, he appeals to Jesus' power and authority. He takes him to this high place, to, to a mountaintop, to the top of a hill. And he shows before him all the kingdoms of man. And he offers Jesus an invitation. He says, Jesus, you and I both know what's being asked of you right now. You and I both know where this is going to lead. And you can avoid the sacrifice on the cross. You can avoid what you know you're going to go through and what I know you're going to go through. And I will give you all the influence and all the power 
that I have here on earth. All you have to do is worship me. Here and now, it's just the two of us. No one even has to know. We're not going to make you go do it in the temple. Just right here, right now, the top, there's just me and you here. All you got to do is worship me. An invitation to win back the world without having to endure the cross. The devil says, I will back down. I will relent. I will give you what you, or what I've taken. Just worship me. All you have to do is, is cut some corners and worship me. But here's what Jesus says. He says, Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus says there is no shortcut. There is no other way. And the ending that you're offering me, it's not the same. See, see, here's the thing. is Sometimes when people will talk about this, this, this temptation, and it's not entirely wrong, but I don't think it's the full picture. Um, people will say, well, the devil never had those kingdoms and had those things. The devil had all kinds of influence. Let's not trick ourselves in the world around us into somehow thinking that, oh, well, the devil didn't really have any influence. No, 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 no. The devil had a lot of influence. And what he was offering Jesus was to remove his influence. The devil was offering him something. But here's the trick that the devil tries to pull on Jesus and the trick he can try to pull on us. Jesus wasn't after kingdoms and rulers. He wasn't after the splendor or a king's authority. That wasn't the kind of rule that Jesus was wanting to have. That wasn't the kind of ruler Jesus was wanting to be. Jesus wasn't there to rule over mankind. Jesus wasn't there to be Caesar. He wasn't here to rule over mankind as a king. He was here to come and save mankind. See, see, Jesus, the devil comes and says, look, if you worship me, I will give you power and authority over all of the kingdoms. I will give you all of my influence. Everything that I've used to warp and shape mankind up until this point, I will relent. I can set you up with all of the power and all the authority that you want. Jesus didn't, wasn't after power and authority. That wasn't the change that he wanted to make. All throughout Jesus' ministry, people wanted him to have power and authority, wanted him to assume power and authority, but that's not why Jesus came. So Jesus, looking at this, says, I can only worship the Father, and, and the, you're not offering me what I want. You're not offering me what I'm here to get. Jesus, knowing that this isn't really what he's here for, rejects the temptation. I will worship and serve God only. And again, doesn't this sound awfully familiar to us? That the devil will come to you and I and say, you know, you can get everything you want. You can get whatever you want. I will give you, you can have it all. You can have success at work. You can have family at home. You can have whatever you want. You just gotta, gotta do these things in order to get it. You, you gotta be cutthroat at work. You, you gotta be a jerk. You, you gotta treat people poorly so that you can get ahead. 
You can have a great marriage. You just got to do what works best for you. Because if you're happy, you're going to have a happy marriage. So if you need to go to the bar every day on the way home, go to the bar. If you need to look at pornography, look at pornography. Whatever it is that you need to do to be happy, that, that the devil takes and he twists and he says, you can have what you want. But what he's offering isn't why we're here. He's not offering a real version of what we want. See, in this moment, Jesus, the enemy says to Jesus, you can still get everything, everything you desire, and it doesn't have to be the way that God says it has to. There is a shortcut. But I know that this isn't always my response. And I wonder how many times for us, this hasn't been our response to the enemy's schemes. When, when he tempts us with our desires and our wants, with something that looks too good to be true, Maybe not something that God has for us, but, but something we really want. How often are we, we able to stand up and say, I serve the one true living God. And even if that means that I don't get something I really, really want, I'm willing to accept that sacrifice. Then the last temptation that we're shown starts in verse 9. The, the devil led him to Jerusalem. And he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And, and he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, the gall of the enemy. He brings Jesus up on top of the temple and he starts to quote scripture. He starts to quote the Bible. He doesn't quote the wisdom of men. He doesn't quote some, some nice sayings. He doesn't read something from the farmer's almanac. He doesn't read a O. Henry quote. He doesn't read, he quotes scripture. He says to Jesus, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against stone. That's in the Bible. It's Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Here's the crazy part. It's not taken out of context. It's not that it's talking about some other thing, and the devil just breaks it and twists it. And, and somehow when you, well, when you read it in, in context, it's not saying, no, no. It's kind of saying what he's implying it's saying. The devil takes Jesus to probably the most prominent place in all of Israel, to the Temple Mount, to the temple, to the place where God's presence dwells. He takes him to the edge and he says, throw yourself off and command your angels to catch you. Abuse your position and make them save you. You, you don't have to worry about dying because your foot won't touch a stone. And do you know how I know that, Jesus? Because I read it in the Bible. See, what the devil does is he tries to get Jesus to abuse his position and his, his authority. And he distorts the word of God to get there. He doesn't distort what the word of God is saying, 
but he distorts how we use the word of God. He distorts how we need to to be faithful to use the word of God. That we need to know and understand that it's not just a collection of words that we get to use at our whim. So many teachers and so many Bible people have been guilty over the years of taking God's word and reading the words that it says and then twisting them to make the Bible say something that it doesn't. Friends, the Bible does not promise you that if you jump off the roof of this building, angels will catch you. You can put it to the test. But that's not what the Bible says. And so as the, the devil brings, the, or brings, brings Jesus to the edge of the temple and he says, throw yourself down off of here because the word of God says the angels will catch you and your foot won't even stub, you won't even stub your toe. What he's saying is, is not wholly and completely dishonest, but it's wholly and completely the wrong way to understand God's scripture. The devil doesn't understand what it means that he's not just talking to a person using the word of God. But John 1 will tell us that he's talking to the word of God in flesh in his name was Jesus. But Jesus yet again responds to this, to this temptation. He says to him, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And as we look at Jesus and we focus on Jesus, we, we see his ability to, to resist and deny the tactics and the schemes and the temptations of the devil. And then we come to verse 13 where the enemy frustrated Leaves Verse 13 says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The enemy's mad. He's frustrated. He's doing his best to tempt Jesus. He's, he's bringing out everything he can think of. He's taking his best shots to push Jesus off. And, and he's realized this isn't going to be successful. He leaves Jesus. But notice that it says he wasn't done. It doesn't say that he gave up on this whole Jesus project. He left him for an opportune time. He, he wasn't done. He would come back again and try his tactics on Jesus again. Maybe it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe it's on the cross. We, we don't know. But the, the devil's going to come back and he's going to try again. I know for my life, that's been my story. The, the victories that I've won, they're for a season. But the devil doesn't give up on us. He doesn't give up on me. You know, we oftentimes will say, God will never give up on you, and that's true. But the enemy feels the same way. And he's not about to give up on you either. But this is the last time that our enemy would tempt and test, or this wasn't the last time that the, our enemy would tempt and test our Savior. And so we look at these circumstances in Jesus' life. We see his unwavering commitment to purpose and calling. We see his unwavering devotion to his Father's will. And, and then I think about me. And I think about Jesus and how he handled this. And then I think about me. I think about us. Can I leave you with a question today? When was the last time 
the devil left you frustrated and mad? Because he failed with you. When was the last time the enemy was so frustrated at your commitment and devotion to God's will for your life that he realized his temptations weren't working? When was the last time we were confronted with temptation and we just trounced the enemy? Or maybe more often than we'd like to admit, we've fallen trap to the temptation of pleasure and comfort. His offers of desires and power and status and position. Where those meant more to us than following the calling and the plan that God has on our lives. Now for us, there's two ways that we can receive a story like this. Great! Look at what Jesus was able to do. I'm not that Another thing to feel guilty about. Yes, it's true. Let me confess before you now. I am not as good of a Christian as God himself. Thanks for the added guilt, pastor. So now not only do I have to feel guilty for the sin, and I got to feel guilty for falling into temptation, which led me to the sin, but now I got to feel guilty because you're going to tell me that I need to live a life just as perfect as Jesus did. Great, thanks for that. That's one way that we can receive a story like this, that, that somehow it leads us to a place of guilt and shame. And maybe for some of you, though, that's what the enemy's trying to stir up inside of you right now, is that you, you hear this and you hear this story and it causes you to think, man, I have failed a lot. I am bad. I am not good news. I am not good but the other way to see this story, to understand this story, is for us to understand and internalize that this story is a promise. That we look and we see that Jesus did it. And we know that because Jesus lives in me, he can do the same thing through me. The same Jesus that overcame everything the devil threw at him, that same Jesus lives and works in me. And through him, this, this temptation that I face, this temptation that I keep falling into, Jesus can help me overcome it. Jesus can help the enemy leave mad and frustrated with me. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that as we, as we read in your word and we read these stories of, of you and, and your amazing power and, and your amazing strength, your amazing resolve, your amazing commitment, as we read about how amazing you are, God, I thank you that, that we don't stand and somehow have to hold ourselves up in comparison to that. Because Lord knows we'll fail. Lord knows we'll fall. Lord knows we will not measure up to the standard of perfection, of holiness that is you. But God, I thank you that we serve a God that's not distant, 
A God that's not absent. A God that's not just standing in judgment of his creation. But God, I thank you that, that in each one of us who has accepted Jesus Christ as, a, as our Lord and Savior, that that, that same power, that, that you had that same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. And so, God, I thank you that for each one of us gathered here today, God, even though each one of us faces temptation, each one of us is tempted in different ways to sin, God, whether it's, it's, it's sins of, of, of feeling insecure or whether it's sins of, of, of action or, or whether it's sins of emotion or, or whether it's sins of, of arrogance or pride or whatever it may be, God, we're all tempted to sin. But God, I thank you that the story that we have and the story that we've just read today is the story of your complete and total power over sin. And God, I pray that that power is at work in each one of us. And so God, I pray for each one of us gathered here that is in a battle right now with sin. Each one of us that is in a battle with temptation. God, may we not try and fight this battle on our own. But may we embrace the power that lives inside of us. The power of Jesus Christ at work in our lives to overcome the sin and overcome the temptation in our lives. God, I thank you that in you we have victory. And God, I pray that for each one of us who needs victory today, God, that today would be a day where we find victory. Thank you, Jesus, for working in our lives. We love you. We're so grateful for all that you are to us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. When I was young, you called my name. Thanks so much for sharing in this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We are so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family. And that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie, and you can connect to us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca. Or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on Contact Us from the main menu, or you can find our pastoral team's contact info by clicking on Our Pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know His hope, know his purpose, and know his power in their lives. And we pray that this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go. You'll never quit on me. You'll always hold my heart. Cause that's the kind of God you are. You gave me freedom from my sin. You told me I could start again All I heard is dead and gone Now we're your daughters and your sons Amazing grace, how sweet the sound We once were lost, but now we're found Forever you hold us in your arms Cause that's just the kind of God you are
young, you called my name I tried to run, but still you came And you stepped into the dark Cause that's just the kind of God you are